Hello and welcome to the Gender and Development Podcast brought to you by the Gender and Development Journal. Hello, I'm Liz Cook, the Assistant Editor on the Gender and Development Journal, and I'm delighted to be presenting this latest episode This time we're talking about gender and the climate crisis, which is the focus of the November 2020 issue of the journal. My guests today are the two co-editors of the issue, Irina Dankelman and Kavita Naidu. Irina is an ecologist by training and specialises in gender and environmental issues. She recently retired from her post as lecturer at the Radboud University in Nijmegen in the Netherlands, and she's an author and regular speaker on gender and climate change issues and an independent advisor for many organisations and institutions worldwide. And Irina's joining us from Nijmegen. Kavita Naidu is an international human rights lawyer from Fiji who works on climate justice issues at the Asia-Pacific Forum on Women, Law and Development in Thailand. Kavita recently joined the organisation Progressive International as a council member, where she works with activists from around the world to shape a new international order centred on the well-being of all people. And today, Kavita is speaking to us from Sydney in Australia. Hello to you both. Hello, Liz. Hello, thank you, Liz. So let's get straight down to it. We know climate change is happening. We know its effects are becoming ever more serious and time is running out for us to prevent the catastrophic consequences of steadily rising temperatures. But I want to ask, why is this the climate crisis agenda issue? Because uh, climatic changes are not happening in a vacuum. They are happening in a world that is still divided, unfortunately. And there are many gender inequalities in our world, like there are other inequalities. But the gender inequalities speak to us very straightforward when we look into the effects, for example, of climate change. Work burdens increase. Uh, We see time poverty because people have to spend more and more time, and specifically women have to spend more and more time in their environment. Uh, We see that gender-based violence is intensifying under stress and climate crisis is, of course, an important stress issue. And it hinders opportunities like education and training for girls and women. So climatic changes or climate change tends to increase existing inequalities. And we see that back in some of the articles in the magazine. For example, uh, Cynthia Vitosa and Marina Yamaoka, they speak from areas, rural areas in Brazil. Mira Narina Butt and her colleagues from Pakistan, and they show us how this is happening. Not only are women's lives sometimes more at stake than males, but uh, and from that we can learn a lot from the lessons from studies on natural disasters, but also their security of livelihood, like food security, energy security, water security, and of course economic security. On the other hand, very important to underline that women are important actors. They are, of course, also like their male companions, drivers of climate change, but they are, uh, and they are contributing like uh, our male companions and other companions uh, to climatic changes. But we indicate that in general, some studies show us that uh, females are making more sustainable choices, for example, consumption choices and demand. And that's very important. 
fundamental system changes. And there are some examples in this journal that specifically underline how women become active in a debt crisis and are not only impacted, but become activists. And they define their own agendas. Um, And there is an article on the feminist agenda for a Green New Deal in the journal. And then, of course, the the actors in climate action. And Cavita's organization, Cavita will certainly go into that, but we see it also back in uh, organizations like uh, Extinction Rebellion, uh, the resistance to all of this, uh, what is happening to not only people, but to the planet. Important to underline is that it's also intersectionality. So women and men, different sexes, race, place, age, ethnicity, all these elements play a role. And for me, as an ecologist, looking with the gender lens has certainly helped to also look into all all these other social, economic and social cultural inequalities in relation to climate change. Okay, thank you for that, Irina. I'd like to turn to Kavita now. Uh, Kavita, you work on climate change with women's organisations in the Asia-Pacific region, where some of the most dramatic effects of climate change are being experienced. Can you tell us what some of these effects are and what they mean for the women you work alongside? So I think it's quite important to put in context the region that I work in, which is you know, situated in the global south. So this is a region that is uh, you know, facing a number of conflicts, um, it has entrenched poverty, discrimination and inequality um, and a vast number of countries are settler colonies that has been exploited and continues to be exploited for its labour and resources and are facing long-standing debt crisis. And it's really important to just put that at the centre of this conversation. So what the climate change is doing is exacerbating existing inequalities and discrimination and violence that women in this region are facing. And the climate change impact in this region is vast. You know, a number of countries are classified as being highly vulnerable to climate change. A number of countries such as Philippines and Nepal are increasingly facing stronger more frequent natural disasters, droughts, heat waves, melting glaciers in Central Asia and the Himalayas, the loss of coastal plains and agricultural land from ocean salinity. So these impacts are actually in the informal economy sector, which is agriculture and fisheries. And in this region, over 70% of the women are working in the informal economy. So the impact from climate change um, is directly impacting their food um, and water security. And so crop yields are falling, productivity is low, water sources are drying up. And this for women, this is affecting, you know, their sexual and reproductive health. It's causing malnutrition, chronic fatigue, dehydration, skin diseases, and many other health conditions. The scarcity of resources is disrupt not only disrupting livelihoods, but many are losing their livelihoods altogether, which is leading to voluntary and forced displacements as well. There is an increasing burden of care on women, which remains unrecognized. And they're traveling further just to collect water and food for their families, exposing themselves to greater violence as well. The economic distress is also contributing to early enforced marriages and increased trafficking of women and children in the region. During natural disasters, women and children face higher mortality rates. 
And after extreme weather events and natural uh, disasters, we've also find that women are exposed to greater sexual and gender-based violence in evacuation and other shelters as well. You also have this region where, you know, the key frontline defenders of the environment are Indigenous women, and they are facing life-threatening risks because of the increasing militarization and the use of um, private armed forces um, to quell any sort of resistance to corporate interests. So these are just a few of the examples of how climate change is directly impacting the recognition and protection of women's human rights in this region. Thank you for that, Kavita. Now, Irina, as we know, climate change is something that's being addressed at an international level with governments working through the UN and signing up to the Paris Agreement of 2015. You've worked on the issue of gender and climate change for a long time. I want to ask you how successful you think the efforts have been to bring an awareness of the gender aspects of climate change into the kinds of places such as the UN where climate change policies are made. And what about the kinds of actions being implemented by governments and other bodies to tackle climate change? And I'm thinking here of adaptation and mitigation programs, financial mechanisms and that sort of thing. How gender aware are these kinds of responses and how much attention, if any, do they pay to issues of intersectionality? Yes, indeed. We've been trying to bring in a gender perspective and a gender lens to all these uh, talks on environment uh, first and later on on uh, climate change. Um, if you look at the results right now, you would say that, yes, the words are there. We have words in uh, many agreements, uh, like the Paris Agreement. We have special Lima work program on gender under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and Gender Action Plan. And we have organizations and people also within the UN secretariats working specifically on the interlinkages between uh, gender and intersectional issues and climate. But this has been a very long struggle. I remember in the early 1990s, we were preparing for the Rio conference, which happened in 1992. And we, as women's groups, organized ourselves drafting an agenda to really change the Rio outcomes in such a way that social elements would be included in that. But then also there was a decision in 1992 about the uh, United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. But although there was in the Biodiversity Convention at least reference to the position of women and in the Rio out, uh, Agenda 21 as well, Nothing was mentioned in the UNFCCC. So it was very much uh, approached as a technical area, climate change. And it took us uh, more than 10 years, uh, 15 years actually, to really change uh, that agenda and that uh, policy framework into something which was more human looking and looking into society and societal issues. Uh, in Madrid last year, during the Conference of Parties, that Gender Action Plan and the Lima Work Program were enhanced and strengthened again. So I could confidently say that, yes, the words are there. 
But then the mechanisms related to the words are important, like financing. For that, there was also strong advocacy necessary to get gender issues in, for example, the Green Climate Fund and uh, in the Global Environment Facility to get requirements in those financing issues, because who gets access to those financial mechanisms or to technical support who gets access to to the possibilities to overcome climatic changes and to prevent them. And for that, again, strong female and male lobbyists have been working hand-in-hand with uh, experts within some of the UN institutions. So again, yes, there is progress. Uh, we know what capacity we need. Sometimes we, we, we lack the capacity or they lack the capacity for that real gender mainstreaming. And, but what is most important is the implementation at national level, of course. We can have international words, but then uh, reality is at national or local level. And there is where uh, still a lot has to be done. I know that from my own work experience that in several countries they are trying to make their national action plans climate change and their contributions more socially responsive. But then often they see women are described as uh, vulnerable instead of actors, as people who have to have power and to have to have a voice and a say in these climate policies. So for me, the words are there, but it's action which we actually need. We are with many organizations worldwide and within some of the institutions. There is a women agenda constituency at the international level, and we still have a long way to go to get the implementation where it needs to be. Okay, thank you, Irina. Kavita, Irina has just talked about work at an international policy level. Your organisation, the Asia-Pacific Forum on Women, Law and Development, is there on the ground with women supporting each other to tackle the effects of the climate crisis. Could you tell us about the kind of work you're doing? Uh, yes, absolutely. And it puts us in the perfect spot for what we do. And that is what we do is we mobilize action. Um, and so one of the key feminist political tools that we use in our work is called the Feminist Participatory Action Research, or FPAR for short. The FPAR is really designed to demand structural changes to our patriarchal systems where, you know, the women identify what's critical to the enjoyment of their human right. The research gives women the voice as experts and authors of their own lives, um, which then shapes and influences policy. And it is completely owned uh, by the grassroots community. They are the stakeholders of the research. They're the ones who frame the demands that they want and the changes that they want to see. We, you know, we take an intersectional approach. So it identifies the experiences of discrimination, exclusion and marginalization. It recognizes the diversity of women's experiences, identities. And really the aim is to shift power. We, we are seeking to reconstruct traditional patriarchal power imbalances and shift to, you know, a gendered source of personal, political and structural power. So key to this really is to foster collective action to build a movement. And what we've found across the region, so working across Asia and the Pacific, we've seen women in one of the most conservative parts of Pakistan demand accountability from the polluting industries for basically destroying 
spring. They're natural forests. They're suffering from a number of high, high frequency of floods because their riverbanks no longer has the vegetation it needs to protect them. And they've done this quite successfully. You know, these grassroots women have been able to go all the way up to the national parliament and for the politicians and the state to then recognize, okay, this is a problem. And so they're, they're basically being successful at getting redress from these polluting industries and large swathes of areas are now going to be restored. You know, it, similarly, we see, we've seen in um, Cambodia, there was a, a large hydropower dam that was built, which forcibly displaced these indigenous communities. And there was a community where, you know, um, the, the women just simply refused to move. And though they were experiencing more floods um, because the rivers were being diverted and so forth, all these essential public services that they had, including this traditional way of earning an income, was destroyed once this dam was built. And through FPAR, these indigenous women around the area mobilized and demanded from the state that, you know, we still require a hospital and schools. We need a road. And a number of things were then built by the state because this, you know, these women really, you know, mapped uh, which actors would be there in country to support them. So they approached other NGOs, youth movements, UN. And, and th- this is sort of the kind of collective mobilization we do on the ground to ensure that, you know, that these women's voices are not simply repressed um, by corporate interests. Um, we've seen we've seen women in Vietnam who could no longer farm along the riverbanks because, again, of increasing floods and so forth. So they themselves decided that the best way to earn an alternative income was to shift to agroecology so that it actually protects whatever land they have. Um, and they moved uphill and started planting bananas instead. And, you know, these local initiatives are recognized by the authorities and they themselves then encourage these women to start meaningfully participating in shaping the policies. Similarly, in India, these women were losing the traditional sources of income again because of climate change, you know, destroying their lands and the rivers that they were relying on. And so, you know, the state helped put together some yarn banks and so that they could weave, which was also a traditional practice. And so the resistance we see across the region are, are, you know, very, very common demands. Participatory democracy, energy democracy, a shift to agroecology, redress and accountability, and really just greater movement building to just simply put an end to the fossil fuel economy. And including in this issue, you will see wonderful case studies from women in Brazil um, who have also revived, actually revived the traditional and sustainable ways of earning an income and, and supporting their livelihoods through, you know, um, having seed banks. And in Niger, uh, you can see the the Dimitra clubs again mobilizing across the Sahel region, making sure that women's voices are being consulted at an equal level to ensure the benefits from solar powered integration also impacts them. And as you can understand, this is again a region where most of the women, um, are, or up to 80% of the women work in the agricultural sector. So this is so important for them. Um, and, you know, in, in waste management, there's another case study, uh, you know, and you can see in Bhutan, Nepal and Mongolia, 
that, you know, even even the kind of disparity when it comes to formal waste modern, modernization management does not really include women um, at decision making level spaces. They're basically at the lower end of, you know, being being paid the lowest and in very insecure situations, while the men hold um, more authoritative positions. So the gender dynamics, including in the waste management space, which I'm really glad we've got this contribution in the in this journal, because this is something that, you know, we we, we really talk about, like overconsumption and extraction um, and pollution. But waste management is also such a huge environmental issue that, you know, needed to be brought to light. And we're doing that here. Um, so, so you can see that women on the ground and as Liz has, you know, shared are agents of change. Um, they are at the forefront of fighting for climate justice. And you can see this in developed countries. You can see this in the USA where a coalition has formed to promote the feminist Green New Deal. And we're all supporting you know, the feminist New Green Deal in solidarity, even though I'm not sure how the Green New Deal will apply in the global south, given our um, debt crisis. But you, you, you can see how the, the power is being shifted um, and where women are getting greater voices in political spaces to really effect the change that we need done. Now, of course, while the climate crisis continues to worsen, this year the world has also been hit by the COVID-19 epidemic. Irina, I'm wondering if you see any connections between the climate crisis and the COVID-19 crisis, either in the ways they're being experienced or in the efforts we've seen so far to tackle them. And thank you, Liz, for this question. And of course, this is the reality we are living in right now. As an ecologist, when I look at both crises, there are many similarities when you look into the cause of, of both crises. For example, the depletion of biodiversity and habitat destruction is certainly contributing to more pandemics and, but also to the melting of permafrost and that again these changing climatic conditions enlarge the possibility for uh, zoonotics to come over and the loss of tropical forests, the wet markets, uh, some of which are illegal because people don't have other livelihoods. So there is a lot of connections in the way people, we as societies are dealing with or are forced to deal with our natural environment. And then, of course, the the effects, they are deteriorating in both ways. You look into climate change and into the pandemic, uh, societies and economies are completely put upside down. Uh, And that's not only at local level, but also regionally and globally, because these pandemics don't know boundaries. So that's a commonality as well. They just go their own way and they are with very complex problems. So what I see with COVID-19 pandemic is that it also enlarges existing uh, climate change problems, specifically for local communities, because where do you have to go and how do you communicate? And, uh, and, and again, specifically for women, this is an issue because gender-based violence is in, increasing and care tasks, on the other hand, are also increasing. So there's this interlinkage between COVID, climate change and conflicts, uh, conflicts in the household and outside communities. 
Increasing poverty is another element. There is a recent uh, World Bank study that underlines the extra push into poverty of, I think, more than 100 million people they expect. On the other hand, climate change does the same. So those who are living in poverty and don't have the possibilities to organize themselves or to have their own lives given back to them, to be resilient, those crises are really impacting on both sides. And then on the other hand, that's important to mention as well, this was underlined recently also in some studies, in times of disaster, if you look back in history, but also if you look in the common, in the present situation, in times of disasters, there are high levels of cooperation amongst uh, groups and of resilience building. There is also possibility to come back in another way after the, the pandemic to really make the fundamental and transformational changes in our economies and societies that are needed, not only to tackle the results of this pandemic, but also to look into a different way uh, in which respects the ecological boundaries and goes back to that agroecology and those technologies which are beneficial both for people and the environment. So that transformational change and the post-COVID planning offers also opportunities for our societies and to make our priorities differently and to reorganize and to make the system changes towards sustainability, which, um, which are important. And the question which is, which I would like to raise now is also, are these post-COVID plans, are they inclusive enough? Do they include the communities, the women and their communities as much as is needed? So that's, I think, a question we have to raise all the time. Okay, thank you, Irina. And yes, absolutely. That's a, a big question mark there. Now, Kavita, I just want to ask you, are you seeing the COVID-19 epidemic affecting the work you're doing with women on climate change? Absolutely. Absolutely, Liz. Look, I think, again, I'm going to just begin by saying that the, that the root problems that are causing both the COVID um, and the climate crisis and the debt crisis and the crisis of racism, they're all intersecting crises. And the root injustices, you know, begins from an unjust patriarchal white supremacist and capitalist system that's imposed on all of us. The, the, the legacy is set on a system where the prosperity of the global north depends entirely on the backs of people of color and plunder from our natural resources and environments and land, rivers, oceans and forests, which is what Irina just explained in terms of, you know, the zoonotic transfer and why we are now having this colliding crises happening at the same time. And so the, the impacts on the ground, um, particularly in the region that I'm working in, is profound. Hunger and poverty, this is a region that was already crippling um, with severe poverty, and you can see with the deepened, uh, and it, this is deepened so drastically because, you know, you've, you've, you've got workplaces that have been shut down. You cannot access spaces um, where you would be earning an income. 
The public services has shut down in a number of places, which means that the women and girls are facing increasing burdens of unpaid care. And, you know, the crisis has also exposed that women, again, are at the centre of providing this care that remains unrecognised and unpaid in the global south and in the global north. You've got children who are now going to be dropping out of school because the, the parents won't be able to afford. This is a region that already has very weak uh, essential public uh, services and barely any social security safety net. So really what, what happens to these to these people. There's been a rapid rise domestic violence uh, because of the movement restrictions forcing women and girls to be more at home and economic distress and increasing pressure on livelihoods. And then you can see with the closure of like shelters and access to justice or police means that we really have no way of knowing just how bad it is for these women. We've also found through our work that migrant domestic workers have also been in- facing increasing violence from their employers. You know, already these women were in a precarious work situation in the region and now being faced with even greater challenges. And what you can see across this region as well is that there's widespread state-sanctioned repression, you know, at times violent attacks on political dissent, uh, which is a significant threat to democracy, peace and security. So basically the state is using the COVID environment to really stifle arbitrarily stifle the freedom of peaceful association and assembly. Indigenous women and particularly being and and indigenous women are environment defenders are being killed at an alarming rate. You can see this in Philippines, which numbers is one of the most dangerous countries in the world for uh, women environment defenders. And so, yes, it's an intersecting, colliding multiple crises. And the only way out for all of us is to really try and dismantle the patriarchal capitalist racist system. That's sort of where all our work is is focused right now to help support the women as best as we can to keep keep going on with the fight. Thank you for that, Kavita. Well, given the nature of what we've been discussing today, I'd like us, if possible, to end on as positive a note as we can. Both of you have touched on areas of potential hope. So I'm going to ask Irina, first of all, what reasons, if any, do you see for optimism when we're talking about the climate crisis and gender? Yeah, I get inspired and I get a lot of energy from people like Kavita and her organizations who are working on the ground with local communities, but also the Dimitra clubs she referred to in Niger, uh, which is also part of one of the case studies, the indigenous Yarang women's movement in Brazil, also a case study, the Extension Rebellions. There is a lot of movement going on. There is a lot of coalition building. And specifically also with young people, I've been working as a teacher, as a lecturer in the university, but the students, my God, they are so active and they are so progressive and they are so visionary. So there are millions of Greta Thunbergs around us and in many parts of the world, the Fridays for Future, the young climate activists, but also the grandparents for climate action now, so like my my age group. All these individuals and all these organizations, female leaders and social networks, they give me a lot of hope. And also that 
this, these issues are now being seen, they are being recognized. Uh, there is more global connection also with other groups like the indigenous groups, trade unions, etc., etc. So we are more coalition builders uh, looking into these alternative plans and ideas like that feminist new Green Deal and all these other tools and approaches which has been described partly in the journal but also all around us. So the, there is more recognition and we have certainly started the journey together. I think that's important to not feel lonely in this, in this struggle, uh, to stand with the communities and to listen to where life is happening. Thank you, Irina. And Kavita, the same question to you. Are there any positives to be found in the midst of these two global crises that we're living through right now? I think there is a lot of hope and belief, which is why those of us who work with grassroots women, we don't lose hope, even though it is challenging. Look, COVID has been such a shocking experience, I think, for all of us, rich, poor, women, men, global south, global north. Um, fair enough, you know, those um, with power and, and wealth are better protected, but still it attacks indiscriminately. And it has been a turning point for all of us. Um, it's exposed the magnitude of the care crisis in our society, um, you know, where in a system that relies on women's work and bodies to fill the gaps in underfunded corporate run public services. So I believe that we've all now been put in a position where we've had no choice but to stop and stock take. How did this happen? You know, as I shared earlier, that it just comes down to the same root causes of how these crises have arisen. And in recognition of this, what I have seen in the past few months has been a true mobilization of global solidarity to build a feminist, just and equitable future, which is founded on environmental, social, gender and economic justice to address all the impacts of the multiple crises. We are pulling out all stops to create a global momentum that's inclusive, that centers traditional and indigenous knowledge on care and well-being. This is the hour of our most urgent need. We, we have no option but to just drastically transform the way that we've been living and doing things and not place the onus on the individual, but on, you know, the big polluters, the large corporations and in collusion with military and the state. And, you know, I'd really like to share how much I learned from grassroots women. These women have the hardest lives one can imagine, yet they have so much love, so much care, so much laughter, fun and unbelievable strength. I mean, if you can imagine these women carry 20 litres of water over five hours under the beating sun or torrential rain without shoes every single day. And we work with them and all we offer them is knowledge. But the power of knowledge, it's a gift. These women have never even held a pen. And yet they are the ones who recognize that they need to be in the spaces where those in decision making levels heed to what is the reality of how this system is basically profiting from the unpaid labor and the unrecognized work of these women, you know, that sustains our global economy. And in even, I mean, even though the inequalities and discrimination and all of that is already so apparent in our patriarchal cultures, which is rampant across the region, the, I think what's the key call for advocacy and demand for action is the overriding threat of climate crisis because 
we've reached a point where we know the pandemic is happening. We even know that we might suffer more pandemics in our lifetimes. You know, and then we've got a planet that is beyond crisis and beyond emergency points. So if not now, then when? And and so giving up hope or not believing, and, and I get so much strength from, you know, the Black Lives Movement. I get so much strength from the Thailand protests. I get so much strength from, you know, the Fighters for Future because I think that's absolutely right. We can see around the world the global mobilization against injustices. So there is a lot to hope for. There is a lot to believe in. And I think we're all working together to make this happen. Well, there we are. Definitely some positives there from both my guests. And I, I do thank them for those. And that's it. The end of our podcast on gender and the climate crisis I'd like to say a big thank you to my guests today, Irina Dankelman and Kavita Naidu. And I'd like to remind listeners that you can find out about the journal's November 2020 climate crisis issue on our website at www.genderanddevelopment.org. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye.